Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think it was very egoistic at the offset, and it became about much more than it was intended to be about when I left home. I like to say it was a country project and it quickly turned into a people project. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Thor Peterson. Thor has just completed his journey to become the first person to travel to every country in the world without flying. This episode features Thor's fascinating story of determination and ambition, and we go pretty deep and heavy into the motivation of the big why when it comes to these sorts of adventures. Thor is eloquent and convincing, but he's also honest and self-questioning. Did he do this for himself, or is he trying to live a life he wants to be seen to live? Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Thor Peterson. So, logical place to start. Please, could you introduce yourself? Tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a deep question these days because I am spending a lot of time trying to work out who am I. I'm I'm certainly not who I was 10 years ago. I I can hardly remember who I was 10 years ago. And the path in front of me is nowhere close to what what it would have been 10 years ago. So so who the heck am I? But in in short, I'd say I'm the first in history to reach every country in the world completely without flying. That was a project that was launched in 2013 and thought to take four years or less. And (laughs) it went on almost a decade and it became far more complex than anyone thought it would uh, for various reasons. And my life has been at stake a number of times. Um... So yeah, and here I am back home in Denmark where I'm safe drinking water and uh, talking to you. So the obvious question is the one that comes next, which is why do that? Yeah, well, you you could go back as far as my childhood. We, we grew up near the forest for a lot of my childhood and I would be read stories uh, like Robin Hood or Ivanhoe and Mowgli and the Jungle Book and later on Indiana Jones and watch the movies and, and, and go out and pretend that I was a character in, in these adventures and, and uh, I'd stay in the forest until I got hungry and then come back home again. And then when, when I got older, I would uh, pick up books and I would read about uh, proper adventures, uh, things that had gone down. The, the people who, who made their way as the first to reach the North Pole or the South Pole and uh, the highest mountains and the deepest seas and dark forests and the longest rivers. And, and slowly it would dawn on me that these adventures were had 50 years before I was born or 100 years or maybe even more than that, that I, I was growing up in a world where essentially everything had been done everything had been explored and 
And even when you go to a mountaintop somewhere or you go deep inside a forest and you, you think for a second, I might be the first person throughout history, you'll find uh, like a bottle cap or <laughs> something like that. You go like, well, okay, I'm definitely not the first. And then uh, philosophically, you, you might not even say anything that hasn't been said before. Like it's with so many people who have been speaking for so long, like what's truly original? And then in 2013, I found out that no one had gone to every country in the world completely without flying. Uh, there have been some pretty solid attempts, but no one had succeeded in reaching every country completely without flying. And that was out of about 200 people who had been to every country in the world, where pretty much everyone uh, doesn't even consider <laughs> to try to do it without flying. It is, for the most part, a flying game. Uh, but I, I felt that it was significant and it was sort of within reach. I, I felt that I had the right kind of personality and, um, and the right skill set to go out and, and do something like that. So that's where it began. There is a lot I want to ask you. And you know, some, <laughs> I of hope it, so. some of it I think is maybe, maybe harder to answer than other bits or maybe more probing, but I... I'm curious as to why you felt like you needed to do something original. You know, you yeah. could just go traveling, you could go and climb some mountains, whatever you want to do, but why mm. be original? Yeah, I, I think the original part has been with me long before and in a much more subtle kind of way. I, I, I took a stance against uh, wearing jeans when I was, uh, when I was in, in my teens uh, because I was looking around, I said, well, everyone's wearing jeans. Like I, like, I don't want to be like everyone else. I don't feel like I'm like everyone else. So I would go out and buy something that wasn't jeans, blue jeans, blue jeans everywhere. Eventually, I, I, <laughs> I did get blue jeans and I started to look like everyone else. But I, I think maybe it, it wasn't even my own decision really like my mother's from finland my father's from denmark so i i my entire life started out being a world with family in two different countries right and and when my classmates would would talk about a vacation on the beach my vacation would always be we went up to see my family in finland you know <laughs> and, and and then come back it would be it would be different from the get go um, we traveled a lot when I was a kid. Um, I was born in Denmark, but almost initially we, we got on a plane and flew to Canada and we lived four years in Canada and then two and a half years in the U S and then came back to Denmark when I was coming close to seven years of age. And then I had my school and my upbringing, most of it uh, beyond that in, in Denmark, but then that also made me different. So it, it meant that I, learned to speak English before I learned to speak Danish. I'm much stronger in Danish today than I am in, in English. And uh, I, I spoke whatever English a child speaks, right? And that was my vocabulary back then. But I spoke English before Danish. So when I was 10 years old and before we had, we had English as, as a subject in school, I spoke the language and it was like my secret skill like I, I could watch morning cartoons and understand what they were saying because I knew English. I was, I was just different throughout. So maybe it's uh, in extension of that, that I wanted to continue to be <laughs> different. So what happened between school and then this huge journey? Were you a traveler? Were you nomadic? <clears throat> yeah, um, I... I went to business school in Denmark and then one day we had one of those uh, classes or we had one of those teachers that, that went like, what, like, tell, tell me, what do you want to do with this? Like, You're going to business school. Where is this taking you? Where do you see yourself in five years kind of thing? And, you know, there was someone put their hand up and said, I want to be an accountant and this is what I want to do. And someone says, I want an office job and this kind of stuff. And like, the, I want to start my own business and so on and so on. And then there's one guy, he put his hand up and said uh, he wanted to move towards uh, shipping. 
And I was like, shipping? What's what's shipping and this kind of stuff? So he explained for the class that shipping was uh, a high-paced kind of job where no two days are the same. It's international and it's well-paid. And, you know, there, there are prospects that you can work uh, at, at a foreign office somewhere and get an international experience. And I was like, that's me. I'm getting into shipping. That's the direction I'm taking. And I finished my education and then I was drafted to the military in, in, in Denmark and I did military service, uh, which was 12 months. And at the end of 12, of those 12 months, I didn't really know, I didn't have any plans. I hadn't set anything up for myself and, uh, a recruiter <laughs> tapped me on the shoulder and says, Hey, how are you doing today? And, um, had a look at my paperwork, which was all right. And uh, then invited me into his office. And 45 minutes later, I had signed paperwork to go uh, with United Nations and, uh, and go on a mission, a peacekeeping mission. So I, I handed over my uniform that Friday and then went away for the weekend and came back Monday and got an, issued a new uniform and a blue beret, started United Nations training and then uh, mission-oriented training. And we flew to uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia, which is uh, the Horn of Africa, and uh, and had a mission there for for seven months, and then eventually came back home and said, "Okay, how about this shipping stuff? <laughs> let's let's get into that." So then uh, became a shipping trainee, and uh, yeah, then they worked within shipping and logistics for twelve years. So the first four years, I was just stuck at a desk in uh, just outside of Copenhagen in in Denmark, and the only international part of it was the paperwork I was pushing. Uh, and then the next eight years was me working two years in Libya, one year in Bangladesh. Uh, I worked in Kazakhstan, in Azerbaijan. I worked in the Arctic. I worked in Greenland. I was uh, some easier destinations. Uh, I was in Florida for a bit. I was in um, Spain and Italy and Ireland. Uh, lots, lots of different destinations. So, and and I got to travel a lot, not just for work, but also. Um, it, it paid well. And when I had time off, I would go and explore some interesting destination that, that I was curious about. So I'd made it to about 50 countries uh, by the age of 34, uh, which was back in 2013 before I started this. Wow. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about all of that. <laughs> First bit, just, and I guess we'll gloss over this quickly, but how did your UN peacekeeping mission affect or change you, or did it not? Uh, it, it did. I, it, it changed me in terms of this was, it was the first time I went to the African continent, and uh, I, I grew up with stories about Africa and some in, uh, teachings and, and this kind of stuff, but well, you go and experience for yourself, and you're 20 years old, and, and you arrive with a gun, uh, it, 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 I mean, it's 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 a different world, and and you're trained for it, and um, you get into all sorts of situations, and your your brain is you're 20 years old. I mean, you're you're a grown up, but you're you're still developing as a person, right? Uh, I mean, come on, 20. You in Denmark, you can drink and drive when you're 20. You can vote. It's you're you're fine. Uh, but yeah, so it's, you know, your brain starts uh, dealing with things you wouldn't necessarily have to deal with if you stayed at home. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure I grew as a person in that. So I, I, that's on my own part. But I also grew or changed in other people's eyes. So when I came back home, I was the guy who went to Africa. And it was a peacekeeping uh, mission. I wasn't there as a mercenary or anything like that. Like I was United Nations and, and it was all, all very orderly and, and organized. And, uh, but, but still, I was the guy I'd been to Africa. So it, uh, for, for a brief period between soldiering and getting into shipping, I went to Austria and I worked as a ski instructor and as a, did different mountain activities and this kind of stuff. And and I remember that this one time the boss of the organization I was working for he his he had a flat tire and he called me and they're like you you changed the tire you've been to Africa <laughs> so I mean like that's a very general uh, way that I was perceived afterwards like I had 
I had some life experience, even though I was still young, I'd, I've done some stuff and, and it invited me some doors open because of that. And I also had some confidence after that, that I didn't have before, but I also had a tremendous amount of untold stories because none of my friends could relate to it at all. So they, people wanted to know if I shot someone and beyond that, they didn't have any questions for me. And I had seven months of, of like life lessons from, from Eritrea and Ethiopia. Yeah. That was, that was a big step for me, I'd say. Yeah, I think there's an element of truth to some of that around, you know, those of us who've traveled to lots of places are viewed differently when it comes to like competence in emergencies or difficult scenarios or anything like that, regardless of where it is. And whether or, whether or not you did know how to change the tire, you kind of, if you've traveled a lot, you tend to think, well, I could probably have a go. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, yeah, it's interesting. And then um, my other question around it, which is backtracking a little, is how does somebody who refuses to wear jeans because they want to be original end up going to business school? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, my father is a businessman, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I just grew up around it and felt that that's the direction I was going to take. I wasn't like business school... I wasn't the, the kind of guy who would show up with a, a suit and a tie. Uh, I, hardly any of us would do that. You know, it would still be jeans and T-shirts and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, did, I did see it as a, as a pathway for me. And I saw that I would be able to, this was before the military, right? But I, I, I did have like an understanding of, of going through the ranks and if you work hard and if you're smart and you're well-educated and, and you're willing to put yourself out there, then you would be able to um, get, a, a, get more and more responsibility and, and maybe even start my own company someday and I could build something. Like that was a path to, to build something. Um, I think that's what I saw in it. Yeah, interesting. Cool. And then, so... The next obvious question of our conversation is how do you go from having your great job in shipping where you're based in different countries around the world and 50 countries, et cetera, to thinking, I know, I'm going to become a dirtbag and live on the road for four years. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's a good question too. It wasn't a, uh, an overnight decision at all. I. I, back in January 2013, I just completed the project in the Arctic and I was back home and I was idle. I was in between projects and that's how my life had been for a while. Sometimes I work back to back. I, I, I come in and I repack and then I go out on, on another project somewhere and sometimes I'm two or three months or oh, between projects. So I was back home and, and, and these projects are intense. Uh, I mean, like I, I, it's, it's not your, your ordinary 40 hour work week and then go out and get a cup of coffee. You know, you're, you're often contracted to work as six days a week and, and the tremendous amount of hours. Sometimes you don't even count your hours. It's just get the job done. So sometimes I need some time to come home and readjust after uh, these, uh, these projects that I've been, been on. And uh, back in January 2013, my father sent me an email and he sent me so many emails over the years and there was a link and I followed it and usually it's something that he thinks will interest me or it's something that interests him and then we'll talk about it uh, afterwards. And in this case, it was about people going to every country in the world and it's the first time it really dawned on me that you could do something like that. Um, because I was 34, I'd been to 50 countries. I don't know that I knew exactly how many countries there were in the world back then, but I, I certainly thought that you couldn't go to them all because I was, I'd spent so much of my life reaching 50 and I was by far one of the most well-traveled people <laughs> among my friends. Right. So the, the, the time consideration within it was just, you can't go to every country in a lifetime. And certainly not if you're not a millionaire. If you're a millionaire, then maybe you wouldn't have to work and earn money to do it, and you'd be able to pay for all the tickets and all the hotels and everything you needed to go. So there's a combination between those. You have to be a millionaire and you have to do it like full-time. But now I was reading about people who'd gone to every country in the world in four years and stuff like that. And 
and young people who had gone, like people, they, they hadn't even turned 30 and they'd been to every country in the world. And that just opened a completely new world for me that this was something you could do. But again, it wasn't something that you could be the first to do because it was about 200 people who had gone to every country in the world. But then I found out that no one had done it completely without flying. And that's really the intriguing part. And I find it so much harder to explain why is that important today than what I did back in 2013. Back in 2013, it was just a given. Of course, it's important. Like no one's done this before. I have to do this before someone else does it. You know, someone is going to go out and do this eventually. But today, why was it important to like people had been to every country in the world. People live in every country in the world. On paper, you can certainly do it. We have boats and buses and trains and whatnot. So why was it important? And, and I, I've, I've tried to reason that a little bit and I have, I sort of explained it to myself a little bit, but I find it really hard to explain other than that it's an enormous project and it's definitely something that's hard to do. And then you could maybe derive something from a, a John F. Kennedy, JFK uh, quote back in the day where I'm paraphrasing, but something about not doing things because they're easy, but because they're hard. Um, so that's the real value in, in all of it. But in any case, so I figured I was too old. I was 34 and I had a wonderful woman in my life and I just bought an apartment. I had, I was 12 years into a career that was going well. There was nothing in the cards that said that I was going to go out and do something like this. I would just get another project and then continue my project life doing logistics and shipping around the world. But I was really hooked on the idea at the same time. So I was toying with the idea, not thinking I was going to do it, but just like theoretically, okay, where would you even start? And would you go east? Would you go west? And what would be a budget for every country in the world? Like what would something like this cost? And how about the time management? Uh, if, if there are roughly 200 countries in the world, how much time would you spend uh, as an average in each country? Uh, because it, it could easily get a run away from you, right? Time management is, is crucial and, and, and something of that size. So what happened was that uh, several months passed and I, was, I figured I wasn't going to do it. And eventually I just thought so much about it that I figured, I, you know, I could probably do this within four years, probably three and a half if I go a little quick through countries I've already been to before. And uh, then I'll come home and I'll be the only one who's ever done that. I'll come back to shipping and logistics. And if uh, someday that's not what I want to do, I would be able to live off uh, stories or uh, maybe write a book or, or, or something like that. And, and then there was also the consideration about age where I said, oh, I'm too old being 34. But if I was 24, then I still had so many years ahead of me and I would easily be able to fit in four years but unfortunately, I'm 34. And then the realization that someday I'll be 44 and I'll say I should have done it when I was 34. <laughs> so there, there was all of that going on. I mean, God, it's so much to unpack. I mean, there's a feature film in this, but I'm really interested in the motivation and where the kind of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation was. And you know, I asked this question completely with kindness, but how much of it was you wanted to go and do something for you and how much of it was I want to, you know, the extrinsic motivators, I want to get into the history books, I want to impress people, I'm seeking something I'm lacking. I don't know what the answer is to mm. that. Yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that question, uh, but I can I can give it a go. <laughs> uh I think it was very egoistic at, at the offset and it became about much more than it was intended to be about when I left home. When it was more like a Guinness world record kind of thing. It was more, it was, I like to say it was a country project and it quickly turned into a people project. And uh, in the beginning it was, I, I couldn't care less about the, the history or the culture and uh, I mean if something would come to my doorstep then I would be interested and in, I would engage but I wouldn't seek out anything um, I just 
get through the logistics and the bureaucracy of it and get to the next country, get to the next country and get to the next country. Um, but then, so the project changed uh, rapidly and it became much more full-bodied. But since your question is, what was the motivation to leave? Then I, I think curiosity about the world. I'd been to a, roughly a quarter of the world's countries and enjoyed that. And I do like to have conversations with people. And I do like the process of, of learning through emerging yourself into an environment. Uh, so curiosity, adventure, to have like a proper sense of adventure. And then I being naive and thinking that if a, a two-week holiday somewhere is great, then a two-year holiday is even better, <laughs> you know, and not understanding that uh, it, it becomes your everyday and that what is an adventure eventually becomes work. And uh, that there was there's definitely this transition from 99% adventure and 1% work into 99% work and 1% adventure as, as time went on. Um, but I wasn't aware of that and I didn't do any research on that. Uh, I was quite naive about what I, if I look back at what I did and what the project was, and it was for me personally, it was a prison. I, 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 I ended up putting shackles on myself and, and giving myself a direction and a very, very long list, a very long to do list. And, and then uh, these shackles will not be released until you, you, you get to the end of that very, very long list. And I didn't see that, um, not for the first year. And it was, probably wasn't until a couple of years in that I realized that, okay, I've, this, there are some very strict rules within this that I have to adhere to that is making this almost impossible. And the joy isn't there as much anymore. And, and, and I'm not even halfway so why not quit? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's another really, really good question. Why not quit? And, and uh, there are hundreds of answers to why not quit. And, and I imagine some of the strong answers are trying to look inside and see who are you as a person? Are you a person that, that folds when it gets hard? Are you the kind of person that has a guitar somewhere <laughs> in uh, uh, stashed away that you never learned to play on, but you have it, you had intentions, but, but your fingers hurt after a couple of days and you gave up. So, so now it's just there. Are you the kind of person that has uh, a French book on, on the bookshelf behind you and you still don't speak French? Uh, are you the kind of person, <laughs> are you the kind of person who said, I've, I've got to quit smoking, but you're still smoking. Are you the kind of person who said, I want to lose weight? but you didn't like, who are we? Who are we? And, and I committed myself to, to something and I didn't want to be the one that went back home and said, I'm the kind of person who quits when it gets tough. I'm going to pull through. I'm going to deliver on this. Uh, it, it, it also sends a strong signal to people who want to collaborate with me. It's like I, back then I was still thinking I'm going back to shipping and logistics so if they hire me for a difficult project or a complex project somewhere in the world, then I go like, listen, I, I didn't quit with that. I'm, uh, I will stick by it. We will finish the project. Give me the money and we will, we will get the results that you want. It sends a very strong signal uh, contra the other message. That would be one answer, right? Yeah, I think there's that. And, you know, it's whatever answer is true of you is the right answer. I think that's <laughs> the thing is everybody's got an opinion. And, you know, there I have definitely spoken to people in the past. And this, I, again, all of this I asked with kindness and I sense that you're up for the kind of backwards and forwards of it. But sure, traveling to every country in the world, by the nature of a project like that, you're never spending too long in one place apart from, you know, unless something like COVID hits, but maybe we'll talk about that. Um, but you know, you could have gone away for four years and decided to just spend some time in Africa mm. or 10 years and, and really immerse yourself in that place. And I think it's fascinating that you said you didn't care about the culture or the history when you left, but then over the course of your project, that was what you realized you were actually there for. 
Um, but also, why not quit? You know, well, because of all those reasons you described. I think um, there's that. I mean, this is super like armchair philosophy, but it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. That whole idea, you know, hardship is fun, difficulty is fun, hard decisions are fun. Yeah, there, there's plenty of uh, fulfillment and joy in accomplishments along the way. You know, like the, some things are just so much sweeter if you worked hard for them, right? And, and I worked hard for a lot of stuff uh, over the past 10 years. And some of the biggest smiles, it's, it's strange because I'll, I will do interviews where people will say, what's your favorite country and what's the best food you taste in this kind of stuff. And then, uh, and then people, they will say, well, at which point were you the most happy throughout? And my mind often goes to a country that was difficult to get inside. And the day that I stepped inside that country, I was happy. And they'll go like, no, I mean, like, was it when you pet it, uh, it's like when you're underneath a rainbow and you're you're playing with a uh, oh, <laughs> I don't know um, uh, a panda or something like that. <laughs> you're riding a panda through a rainbow. Was that the most happy? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which which it could have been. And then often because I I got engaged and I got married twice to the same woman throughout all of this. So if I start talking about that, then people relate. People cannot really relate to getting a visa that was difficult to get and that brought me happiness or or, or crossing a, a border, uh, which 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 also gave me me happiness. Uh, yeah, so surely the hardship. But if, if, if you want to elaborate just a little bit in, in terms of motivation, um, sometimes I was motivated by the overall goal of becoming the first like this is my chance of of completing this huge huge task and and achievement and getting to the end of it getting to the top of the mountain that because it's their moment uh within all of it but sometimes that wasn't strong enough motivation for me then i traveled as a goodwill ambassador of the danish red cross and i was teaming up with the red cross globally i was raising awareness for humanitarian work and raising funds and donating blood and connecting the movement uh, in uh, by by visiting them all and, and sometimes i was motivated by that you know like this goes beyond myself this is not just me this is helping people or other people helping people and and helping people who are helping people. And, and, but sometimes the motivation honestly wasn't strong enough within that. Sometimes it was, but sometimes it wasn't. And then I built up this message about every country essentially being the best country in the world, that it's, it's, it depends a little bit on which glasses you put on and that people just being people and keep on keeping on. And so there's all of this and trying to inspire and, and motivate people through my own actions. And the feedback on that has been amazing. And sometimes that feedback was motivation, like reading these messages from people, how much it means to, to people all around the world, what I was doing. But then sometimes I didn't feel like, I, I mean, like sometimes it wasn't enough. So sometimes I, I felt like, oh, well, if, you know, it's it's just a couple of people I'm I'm inspiring. It's not millions of people I'm inspiring. Like I'm I'm not doing enough good. Uh, I'm not. It's not enough to keep me in the game like that. And then the question becomes really interesting to me. So if I'm not motivated by anything and I'm suffering and I'm in mental pain and physical pain, then why not quit? And I'm still reflecting on that. I'm not sure I have a really deep, strong answer to. Maybe it's just who I am. I mean, when the going gets tough, kind of stuff. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
yeah, and I'm gonna. The last time I'll do this game, I like ask with kindness, but that can be a flaw. Like, I definitely know, you know, yeah. people <laughs> who are like that. And yeah, sometimes quitting is the right thing to do. Saying, it is. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, so most of everyone I know never told me to come back home. Uh, no, never told. They told me to come back home, but they never, they never told me to quit and come back home. I had one really good friend who reached out and said, "Okay, it's time. Like it's this. It's it's gone twice as long now, and it's still going. You're still not at the end." So he said, "You should you should set an ultimatum in front of yourself. Like say six months and see how far you get." the next six months and then come back home. But this is starting to hurt people and this is starting to, to get ridiculous. And I didn't want to hear that kind of talk. You know, I just wanted like, this is, this is some ob- obsession within it. Uh, my wife has been incredibly supportive throughout all of this. I imagine that, you know, somewhere inside, she would rather that I quit and I came back home and we could have a normal life and we could start a family. But she has just been behind me. She's just been supporting me throughout all of this because she wanted to see me accomplish it and, 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 and cross the finish line. And I think she also had enough foresight to see that I might come up with 10 good reasons or even 100 good reasons why it's okay to quit and then come back home. And then when people ask why, I'll just deliver those and everybody would understand and that possibly I went further than anyone ever could. So it's already uh, quite the achievement. But then over the course of time, I'm sure that some of my explanations would water down and they wouldn't be as strong anymore. And I would be looking myself in the mirror and going like, there were, there were just a few countries left. Was it really that hard? And then I'd have to try to remind myself how hard it was. And like, you know, so she had the foresight to see I'm probably a better person for completing it. Yeah, for sure. I think that's very, very wise to like think about, you know, if I'm going to get my husband back, I think I'd like to have him back successful. Otherwise, he's going to be a nightmare. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah she is how- very wise. But how did you have that conversation at the start? I mean, it took you nearly 10 years or 10 years. You expected it Mm. to take four. Even four is a massive amount of time. So how did you approach that conversation? And was she supportive at the start? Yeah, she was. uh, She wasn't pushing me out or anything. I think she would still have preferred that I would have stayed um, at home and we would have continued uh, waking up next to each other and going on evening walks. But it was a little bit in relation to where we were as within our own lives at the time. So she was finishing her education, becoming a medical doctor, and she was spending a lot of time on that. And then she knew that she was going to pursue her PhD, which she knew was going to be really, really hard. So even if you're in a relationship, that's going to draw a lot of time away from each other. And, uh, and, and somehow it, it didn't, it didn't seem so crazy that I would be away and she would be focusing on her life and I would be focusing on the project and we would still be an item and she could come and visit when she wanted to. And we can text and call each other every day and whenever we wanted to, because this is modern times, this is not 1805 and, and, and you need to wait for the mail to arrive. You, you have instant connection pretty much anywhere around the world. So we felt this is something that that was doable. And then she also needed to start her career. So at the end of a PhD, then launch into a career, maybe do a lot of night shifts and and be a little bit groggy in the daytime and this kind of stuff. And then she also decided that she wanted to pursue her lifelong dream of completing an Ironman. And she spent a year exercising and training and getting ready for that while she was doing her PhD and while she was uh, moving on to the next thing and the third thing and so on. So it wasn't a case of her sitting on a chair, looking out the window, wondering when I was coming back. She had her own life. And in, in that perspective, four years or maybe three and a half wouldn't have been as crazy as 10. Like we weren't negotiating 10 years. We're negotiating 
what what's uh, akin to a university degree, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it's just not how it played out. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so the the way the conversation actually went was that I'm. I think I'm doing this. And she goes like, yeah, I, I've seen it coming for some time now. You <laughs> go like, yeah, so how, what, what are we going to do about this? I have had long distance relationships before. Uh, hardly any of them were successful. Actually, you'd say 100% of them were unsuccessful <laughs> because I'm now, I'm now with you. And, uh, and so what are we going to do? Are we going to try a long distance relationship? It's not necessarily always fun. It, it does take work. And uh, it, it can be quite rough. Um, or we're going to go separate ways and, and live separate lives. And she said, we have something really good right now. And it would be a shame to break something that's good. So let's start out with a long distance relationship and see how it goes. And if we find out two or three months down the line, or that, then we'll break it off when it's not good anymore. But as long as it's good, let's stay together. And you can't argue against that. Uh, and I didn't want to either. So, yeah, so we stayed together. And it, for the most part, it was good. And we've hit some rough patches, obviously. But for the most part, it was really good. If she'd said, this isn't working, would you have said, that's a shame and carried on? Or would you have gone home? I, I think... It, no one ever said it. No one ever brought it up at the time. But I think we both knew that our relationship had gone for a year at the time. We'd been together for a year. And throughout most of that year, I'd been focused on either toying around with the idea of how could you go to every country without flying or actively planning to go to every country without flying. Um, so I was quite invested in that. And I think she knew that if her decision was it's either me or the project, then she might not like the answer. I mean, did you talk about that? We talked about it later on. Um, and, but I, I think she fully understands. She knows. I think she has a better understanding about who I am than, than I do. And I think, yeah, no, I, I think... She's well aware that I'm I'm very loyal and I'm very committed, and uh, it's not just a stupid project going every country without flying. It's also in a relationship. I'm I'm loyal and I'm committed, and uh, and and I have her back, and I'm someone that she wants to have in her life. I but hope I think, so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but hindsight is at the same time, you know, a beautiful and a terrible thing. Um, and now that you're back, I guess you haven't had that much processing time yet, really, um, not given the scale of your endeavor. No, not in the big picture, no. Do you think that the – how? what word do I use? Well, the passion, the enthusiasm, the commitment you had to your project, now that you've done it, did did it matter to you as much as it now – you know, it mattered to you a lot at the time. Does it matter as much to you now that you've finished it and that you've done it? Or is it that, you know, there's that Prince line. Um, somebody said to him, you've gone triple platinum. How does it feel? What do you do now? What are you going to do next? And he said, oh, man, I've been to the top of the mountain. Trust me, there's nothing there. Yeah, well, it's, it's true. Uh, of course, in, in my case as well. Um, it feels like it's never enough. Like it's a, it's a, it's a little bit like money. It's a little bit like uh, social media followers on social media. Like there's, there's no number where you go like, this is what I was aiming for. This is good enough. Let's stop here. Um, we're, we're living in a world where 20, 25 years ago, it was, it was quite amazing. If one of your friends went out and ran a full marathon, right? And then it didn't take long before people sort of started to grasp what's a proper accomplishment within running a marathon. So if you did it in five hours, then it's not as impressive as if you did it in three hours. So, so quite quickly, it turned into someone ran a marathon. And then the follow-up question would be, what was your time? And, and then if they said four hours and 15 minutes, it'll be like, oh, okay, well, well done. 
But if it was like three hours and 30 minutes, it was, oh, you're, that's amazing. You must have trained hard. Like, and then suddenly it was Ironman. And that just dwarfs a marathon because it's only a third of the disciplines, right? So what's next? What's next up, up the ladder? And if you are motivated by achievement and if you're like a CEO kind of type of person and, and you need to top everyone else, you need to, like we talked about climbing um, before this interview, if, if, if like, well, how can you top this? How can you top this? Like who's, who's, who's the goat, right? And then if, if it's every country in the world without flying, um, I mean, I hold a lot of respect amongst travelers, um, uh, long distance travelers and, 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 and people who've gone to every country in the world. There's, I'm sure some think that I'm a show off as well, because that's just the nature of, of how it works. But I like if you know, if you have proper understanding about what we actually accomplished in terms of logistics, bureaucracy and endurance within this then there's generally a lot of respect and and a free beer if that's what i want <laughs> and so yeah i mean i don't know if that in any way answers it but yeah i don't know i think like you were saying you say oh, over in the marathon and everybody asks what your time was i mean that happened the other day you know the last weekend i was having a conversation with someone about long distance running and they asked what the times were yeah I think, nobody ever asks my favorite question when you say you've just done a big thing which is was it fun yeah yeah it's it's a good question i mean yeah so yes so i just realized i probably didn't really answer the question so with, with getting to the top of the mountain like there's nothing there at the, the last two countries i reached I've, i felt nothing there was no joy whatsoever, which was unlike all the other countries I'd reached. And it had nothing to do with the countries that I reached. There was just no feeling whatsoever. It had the workload and the amount of hours I was spending and the stress that I was experiencing coming closer and closer to the end of it. And, and what was at stake if it would fail just before the end? Or if someone would get sick at home and I would have to make a choice between going to the last few countries or flying home to be with someone in the last few days of their life. Uh, it's, it's like building a card house where it doesn't matter too much when you put the first cards, they fall over, you put them back up. But when you're putting the top cards on a big card house, <laughs> I mean, you're holding your breath. And, and that's what it was. You know, this is it, it, it ran nine years nine months and 16 days. So it wasn't quite a decade, but pretty close. And that's a huge investment. Uh, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, more than a fifth of my life that I, I spent doing this. And uh, I, I put a lot of effort into it. And, and yeah, I guess I was just exhausted. I was overworked. I was pushing burnout. When I reached the, the last two countries, I didn't feel anything. I just did the Red Cross meeting, I did the interviews, I did the social media posts, and I did what I had to do, and then moved on. And then I got back home, and I that felt pretty good. Like, it felt, okay, now it was both successful, and it was completed um, when I got back home. And and there, there wasn't a there's nothing there kind of moment. There was, there was something there. There was joy. There was support. I, I felt happy. And, um, yeah. And then in, in terms of processing something this size, I don't know if I'll able be, I'll, I'll ever be able to process it fully. I, I, I don't know if we're talking months or if we're talking years or, or we're talking, it will never happen. I'll, I'll, I'll never settle in, in the way that I'm hoping that I will. But I do generally think that all of these interviews that I've been doing, uh, since coming home have been, a part of the process because interviews are a series of questions. And every time I answer, I mean, some questions, I, I just rattle the same old thing off, you know, it's like press play, but, but in, in many cases, and especially in a conversational form like this, I think about what you say and then I reflect and then I try to look inside and see what is my answer actually. And and if I've had enough of those conversations, and I really feel I've had many, 
then that's a part of the process of coming back home. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not shy about talking about the fact that I've had, you know, extensive therapy in the past and pretty much all of it's based in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. For it's, sure. It's a pretty good way to, um, to process things. So where is your head at now? Um, so it's pretty good. I mean, there, there, I, I, I started to feel really nervous three days before getting back home. I ended up deciding that the best way to end the project was to come back home also without flying. So travel home over land and sea. So I reached the final country, which was in the Indian ocean. And then I had to connect with the three ships to get back home. And the last ship was a voyage of 33 days, which went across the Indian Ocean and through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal and the Mediterranean and the Biscay and the English Channel and then finally the North Sea and up and around Denmark and then home, which was a really, really good way to process coming home. Instead of getting on a plane and then being home within hours, now I need this is this slow process understanding I have five weeks, I have four weeks, I have, you know, I'm getting closer and closer and closer, looking at the map, understanding, feeling the temperatures changing and the humidity changing, uh, that all of this, like this slow return home. And I was feeling really good about, okay, I'm going to get back home. I'm going to have a wonderful reception. People are going to cheer on the accomplishment. Then I'm going to start writing a book. Then I'm going to sell a book and people are going to buy it. I'm going to go out and do speaking engagements and people are going to hire me. There's going to be no end to the speaking engagements. And then we have this documentary. It's going to come out. It might end up on Netflix or in some other platform. It's going to be a huge hit. But then three days before coming back home, this other voice in my head went like, nobody cares. No one's going to come and greet you. You're going to be alone at the port. No one's going to be there. Like you have all these images in your head, but nobody cares. And, and, and no one's going to buy your book. Like there are so many books out there. Like they're not going to care about your book. You're probably not even going to finish the book. And maybe people will have you come and speak, but you're not going to be well paid for speaking engagements. They'll give you two bottles of red wine and then say, thank you. And that's not going to be a path for you. And the documentary, like why would Netflix want to put that on their platform? That's not where it's going to end up. It might not even be all that good. Then that all of these, all of this doubt was just washing in over me. Uh, yeah, so to, to get to where I want to get to in, in this conversation is just to say, okay, now some time has passed and it is looking pretty good. Um, I, I have a, a deal with uh, a publisher um, and I have uh, a co-author who's going to help me with the book and I have a lot of confidence in, in his writing and in some of my stories and that, that, uh, that we'll be able to, to work that out. Um, I'm going on a speaking tour next year and that's someone setting that up and putting up posters and selling tickets. And I have confidence in the documentary. I think that's, it's going to be really, really good and it will be well received. So all of that puts my mind at ease. Um, if you look at some of the more soft uh, factors, then things are going really well between my wife and I, and we're between homes right now. And in, in a week's time, we're moving in and starting our life together in, in a new home and getting new furniture. And yeah, it, it looks really good. Well, I'm glad. Thank you. <laughs> that, I, that I have to ask, you know, outside, yeah. I'm very, very glad that domestically things are good, obviously, because 10 years is yeah. a long time and I'm used to traveling and I have a wife and young kids. But mm. so I, you know, in my own way, understand. But if nobody had shown up to the port apart from family and mm. if the book deal didn't come off, if Netflix weren't interested, would it really matter? Would that change your experience? I think it would. And uh, I think it would matter in the same way that I would generally tell anyone that your social media following, the numbers on your social media is not important. That's not where you get happiness or where you find yourself. But a social media following is a great indicator to tell if you're doing something that has interest or not. So you have, like, I mean... 
uh, America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent and these shows, X Factor and so on, it is healthy for some of these people to go on a stage and get booed off the stage, right? But they, I mean, a, a lot of people have high thoughts about themselves and, and if they just did this or they have a great business idea, I mean, the Shark Tank and these shows as well, it's, it's good to see some of them leave and be told like, no, forget about it. Um, and, and that's, that's what that is to me, right? It's, it's recognition. So I'm not chasing fame. I, I, I don't really like the idea of, of fame, but I am chasing recognition. I want someone to understand that I wasn't on a 10 year gap year kind of thing, or that it was an extended holiday. I want people to look at this and say that was a proper accomplishment. Like I wouldn't mind that when I someday pass that they will name a street after me, some small dark street in, <laughs> in a corner of Copenhagen and go like, this is Thor street. And then people can go and say, who is Thor? Oh, they'll never say that. They'll just assume it's the other Thor. Right? <laughs> um, but, but I mean, it's, it's a pat on the back. And I really feel that I need that. I, I feel that I have done something which was incredibly hard and it was very rewarding. And then you could ask the question, well, isn't it enough that it's rewarding? And it's not. <laughs> it, it, it just isn't. Like, it's, it's very rewarding, but I do want the recognition. And I feel envy when I see people do f far less and then get all the praise in the world. So I'm not a well-balanced person in that aspect. Now, I came back to Denmark on the 26th of July and walked down the gangway of that ship. And that was a Wednesday. And that Wednesday, the winner of the Tour de France, which if anyone doesn't know is a, a very prestigious bicycle race, um, the winner was Danish. And he came back home to Denmark the same day. And they started an event in Copenhagen. So I came to Denmark's second largest city, which is Aarhus. That's where the ship went. I would have preferred Copenhagen, but the ship went to Aarhus. <laughs> he flew into Copenhagen and I, there were tens of thousands of people with flags and cheering and chanting his name. There were about 150 people at the port. Uh, with flags and, and cheering. And there was a jazz band playing when the saints come marching home. And so I, I had a really good reception. But I mean, more than 13,000 people have completed Tour de France throughout its more than 100-year history. And it has been won 102 times. Uh, I'm the first in history to reach every country in the world. I'm one of history's most traveled people this is a, a, an accomplishment which is unparalleled. I, I want some recognition. I, I just can't help. <laughs> I mean, that's who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to work out who I am, but I do understand that I'm someone like I, and, and then the question again becomes, when is it enough? Like what kind of recognition is enough? At which point can you sit down and go, okay, that, um, I'm happy now. And maybe, I don't know. I'm just fascinated by it, though, and I, I hugely admire your honesty because I think most people would just say I don't need the recognition, but lots of them do. And I think, you know, in the world of mountaineering these days, generally being guided up Everest and having a photo at the top is enough to call yourself a hero. You know, a yeah. long, I'm not, I don't want to take away anybody's dream or ambition, but being guided up the fixed lines on a long, cold, snowy walk, hardly using your hands and standing on top makes you a hero. Most people who are climbing first ascents of 7,000-meter peaks around the world, nobody has a clue who they are. Yeah. And largely, they do not care because they yeah. don't want recognition. And I guarantee yeah. you they're happier people than the people who need to climb Everest. So I'm curious as to, like, why you feel like you need the recognition? Why is it not enough to be one of the best travel people in the world to have had your experience? Why? Yeah. Well, I suppose 
I suppose it relates to who I am uh, within my core, uh, that I didn't want to wear blue jeans. Like I, I didn't want to be like the others. I, I don't want to be a follower. I want to be a leader uh, that I don't. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, and, and, and as far as honesty goes, I imagine that I think that I'm better than a great deal of other people. And you're not supposed to be when you're from Denmark. When you're from Denmark, we have this thing called the Yenti law. And it's a law that's derived from uh, a novel that was written some years ago where there's a, a fictitious uh, village and they build up this society and they have a Yenti law which keeps people in place. And one of the core uh, rules within the Yenti law is that you should never believe that you're better than anyone else, that you should never believe that you will amount to anything, and th this th that kind of sentences. And that book was popular, and it spread into Danish society. So it's it's ingrained in Danish society. It's not a proper law, like you can't get fined or anything, but it's a, it's a social law in Denmark that you never accomplished anything great on your own. Like it was done with people. It was done like you achieved it because you were lucky and, and so, and so, and so. And, and so there's this delicate balance between trying to live and follow the Yenti law and be humble and, and yet feel like, no, I'm, I'm, I did something that you would never be able to do. You wouldn't be able to do it at gunpoint. Like I, there was, yeah, there was luck involved in the process. There was plenty of help from thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. There was a lot of chance, but there was skill as well. And I want you to say, yeah, you did well. <laughs> I, I can't say, I can't say it any more clear than that. I don't know no, why, um, why I have that feeling. Like I, but we do this with kids in the school as well. Like you give them medals and you give like uh, stars and uh, appreciation and uh, yeah, I maybe I don't know. Maybe it's who I am. Maybe it's who I've been taught to be. Like maybe it's a maybe it's I don't know. I don't know. I would love to rest within myself and just sit down. And go like this is enough for me. But like, I'm telling you something else. Like I really want this book to come out and 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 be a well a well written book and well received. But not because I want to make money off the book, because I want people to know the story. I want people to not. Uh, it's not a look at me story. It's not look at what I did story. This is for me. It's a story about the kindness and the generosity of people and the beauty of different countries all around the world. And it's a story about endurance and and persistence. That you set yourself a goal and you do not waver from it. That you walk through the darkness and you walk through the cold and you eventually reach your goal, but you will get there if you put your mind to it. The, the, the moment that you give up in life, that's when you lose everything that you're aiming for. But if you are willing to keep fighting for it, that's your chance in achieving and getting what it is that you want. And, and I, I don't need money for that. I just want it to spread as much as possible because those are words that I can live by. That's something that I believe in. And 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 I th I think that's also the distinction between fame and recognition. Like I don't want fame. I really don't want it. I don't want people to recognize me on the street and want selfies and that that's, that, that kind of stuff. That, that I I'd like to live a more or less anonymous life that I can just go shopping or or and no one will know who I am. But I want the recognition. I want to be able to look up <laughs> in a book and see my name and it says that this guy did so and so. It's fascinating. And I think it's nuanced and complicated. And, you know, I could grill you on this for hours, but um, <laughs> hundreds of time and to save your sanity, I won't. But um, All right. <laughs> I, well, I always ask two people, uh, sorry, I always ask people the same two questions at the end okay. of every episode. 
Um, well, I'd love to grill you for hours on this, but um, <laughs> the first question is, what scares you? I, I think it relates to what we just talked about. Like, I'm there. Are, there are a great deal of things I'm not scared about. I'm not scared about walking into Afghanistan or revisiting Somalia and or being on a ship in a storm. And, and I mean, there are many, many things I'm not scared of, which other people automatically would be. I think I'm scared about failure. I think failure scares me. That I I know I can pick myself. I've failed a thousand times within the past ten years. Like I I, I dug holes that were so deep that there was no sunshine left but 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 i was able to climb out of those holes but i do fear utter failure that i'm working on something and it just falls flat on the ground and it cannot be erected interesting and what brings you hope my wife generally brings me hope i, I feel like she's my anchor um within all of this i'm i'm not sure that i belong in denmark or in copenhagen right i'm I'm really i have some big questions for myself in terms of who i am where i want to be physically as well um i spent two years uh, in hong kong throughout this entire project and i've been back in copenhagen for less than two months i know hong kong on a much deeper level than i know copenhagen uh, but I do know that I'm here because my wife is here and and I feel home next to my wife. And if my wife says we're going to New York, then we're going to New York. But I have her as an anchor within my life and she brings me hope. That's a wonderful answer and a great place to leave it. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.